Tonight's talk is about coming into balance. In many Zen stories, uh, there'll be a very familiar ardent student or searcher, and the student will travel far uh, through a lot of difficulty to find a teacher out in some remote area in the mountains of Japan. And the student goes through a lot of hardships to get to the teacher, and then the teacher uh, meets the student. And one of the teachings of the teacher is to tell the student to pour him some tea. Uh, and the, the student is told to pour the tea, uh, but not to stop until the teacher tells him. So the student is uh, pouring the tea into the teacher's cup, and it starts overflowing, and it's overflowing and overflowing, and the teacher doesn't tell him to stop, and it's pouring all over the floor. And finally, the student starts yelling. And he says, can't you see that the cup is full? You know, it won't hold anymore. You know, tell me to stop. And then the wise teacher will say, and so it is with you. Your mind is already too full of too many things. Only when you're empty will there be room for understanding to come in. If we make inner space within ourselves like an empty cup for experiencing life, whatever is happening in a moment, uh, we can truly be in balance with and we'll receive it, we'll be able to transform that moment into understanding. So we need enough space. Part of what we do on retreat and in our daily life is making sure that the cup is empty enough, that the mind is empty enough, so that we can transform our experience into wisdom. At the time of the Buddha, uh, monks and nuns would go out with a begging bowl once a day to receive their food. We have it a little easier here. Uh, but the sense of begging for food with an empty bowl is part of this tradition. It's part of the practice. So that these people went out and whatever was offered to them in that bowl was the nourishment for that day. And I think we can learn a lot from this, knowing that that comes from our tradition, uh, that there's a metaphor here for us, that we can start each day with an empty begging bowl. Or we can even begin to start each sitting or each walking with an empty begging bowl. And slowly, with practice, we can learn to start each moment with that exquisite sense of having an empty begging bowl and receiving the nourishment of that moment. If we let whatever in the moment comes and the bowl is empty, that moment will be just enough. In Japanese, the name for begging bowl is orioki, and it means just enough. So can you imagine having that relationship to each day or each moment, that that moment is just enough? When we're eating lunch, when we take a bite of food, 
is that food in that moment just enough? And if you just think of noticing a breath, if we didn't get enough air in that moment, you would panic. It wouldn't be enough. And if you got too much air, it would be too much and it wouldn't be just enough. And so that relationship of letting go of control and just allowing one moment, that perfection of that moment of an in-breath and out-breath to be enough nourishment, just enough. How about a moment of aversion or a cloud of aversion? Can we have that relationship of it being a begging bowl and that aversion being the food for that day? If you're an aversion type, this is a great metaphor. You know, what is on your plate? What's on our plate for today? What was on our plate for yesterday? And then if we have that relationship of our life, each moment being a plate of food, well, maybe we won't eat that much today. You know, maybe we'll back off and we'll fast that day. (laughs) Or maybe we'll be able to eat some of it. Or will it ever be just enough? Will any moment in our life be just enough? Our tradition has something to teach us around this begging bowl and the meaning of life being just enough. So what are the nuts and bolts of this kind of balance where we truly could receive a moment and it be just enough? I'd like to offer a conceptual framework for this. And it's just a framework. You know, you can use what is useful, throw out what isn't useful. If we understand that life is this incredible stream of change, that it's going at a velocity that's unimaginable to us, then finding balance would be an almost impossible situation. Being able to receive a moment and it being truly just enough, would, we would understand that it would take a lot of compassion for ourselves to do this because it isn't so easy. One of the Buddha's teachings is that because life is changing at this incredible velocity, because we never know whether a moment will be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that the truth is that anything can happen. And so finding balance, being able to receive a moment like it truly would be receiving food in our begging bowl, would be being able to see that freedom is accepting that anything can happen in a moment. We might just get an appetizer, or we might just get dessert, or we might just get a main dish. It's like anything can happen in life. We don't know what's going to be in our plate. And that makes it difficult for us to have balance. It makes us so insecure. We want to know, we want to know, we want to know. The Buddha taught a conceptual framework called the seven factors of awakening, or the seven factors of enlightenment, the seven factors of freedom. 
Mindfulness is like the warp of a loom. And the other six uh, factors of enlightenment are like the weft. And if you think of the seven factors of enlightenment as like a, a woven fabric of freedom, it can be helpful. So mindfulness is the first. And then there are the energizing factors of enlightenment. They're what um, bring energy. They wake us up. Investigation, energy, and rapture are the energizing factors of awakening. And then calm, concentration, equanimity, are the, the tranquilizing or calming factors of awakening. And we can relate to these kinds of energy in many different ways. Sometimes I relate to them as not like male or female gender, but as masculine and feminine energies. We need the awakening, alert, uh, precise energies, and we need the calming, open, soft, gentle energies. When they come into balance, when we have the union of those energies, there's that balance. There's that just enoughness to the moment. When there is that sense of contentment and just enough and freedom, we're happy, we're peaceful, we're free. One of the difficulties in presenting uh, the seven factors or this balance is that, yes, in each moment, perfection is already here. You know, that balance is here already. We have it deep inside of us. On the absolute level, we're completely free already. Each moment is perfect just as it is. Yet on the relative level of reality, if we accept that there's these two different levels of reality, this absolute perfection level of reality, and then the relative level of reality, uh, if we accept both, then on the le relative level of reality, we're evolving, we're changing, we're maturing. And so this contextual framework will fit into both of these, that when they come into balance, we see this perfection of the moment. And when we're, when we're not in that balance, we have the potential for ripening these factors. Both are true. Usually in the practice on a retreat, we're, we're developing all of these factors of enlightenment. Since some of us, some of them are quite mature and some are quite weak. You know, they're ripening at different levels at different times. Uh, but what's most important is that they're not something far away from us. We're touching in to all of them, usually within a half an hour, never mind a day. And to remember that they can come into balance in any moment. They come into balance now. They come into balance now come into balance now, when we're brushing our teeth, when we listen to a bird, when we observe fear. Each moment it has that potential for awakening, 
it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with two moments from now or something changing. It has to do with how we relate to the moment now. So freedom can only happen in that moment of now, and yet can we hold that the factors mature, that they deepen. So the first factor of awakening, this, um, the, the warp of the loom, or the fabric, the foundation of the fabric of freedom, is mindfulness. That's why we hear that word so much. It's a non-judgmental attention. It's beginner's mind. I think of mindfulness as just that spirit of beginning again, no matter what. That spirit of starting again. Mindfulness treats each moment equally. It treats each experience equally. It doesn't value one experience over another. And so that's why mindfulness is the warp or the foundation of the fabric, because the mindfulness allows us to live fully in the present moment, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It allows us to be in the present moment without being lost in aversion or without being lost in attachment. As mindfulness ripens, we no longer have to run away from pain. We don't have to be afraid of pain. We're no longer afraid, we're no longer attached to ease, no longer attached to pleasure. Mindfulness is what allows us to touch the truth of life on deeper and deeper levels and not to feel separate or alienated. As we feel more able to be touched by each moment of life, that it really is just enough, out of that contentment comes a lightness or a buoyancy, a happiness, freedom. So it's that spirit which is so uncomplicated. It's so simple, that spirit of beginning again, that spirit of treating each experience equally. Over and over, day after day, the only thing it requires is remembering. All we're doing is practicing remembering who we are, remembering who we are, remembering who we are recollecting, remembering. It can become a way of life. This remembering, as I've said, is the foundation of awakening. And then we move into the other six factors of awakening. So there's the mindfulness, and remembering that mindfulness um, is necessary for all the other six to ripen. That's how important this uh, factor of awakening is. So the next one is investigation. It's the beginning of the energizing qualities. And I won't talk so much about this one because I think we've emphasized it a lot. The description of investigation is like if you had a dark room, totally dark, and you turned on a light. That's how this factor of enlightenment feels. And it's any time 
that you ask yourself a question like, what is happening? <laughs> you know, that's, that's all it takes. You know, what's happening right now? That's investigation. And whether we open up our attention and notice what's happening or we get very focused, it's just that ability to sharpen up, to lighten up, to, to awaken, what, recognize just what's happening. And we have talked about that a lot. The Buddha taught that investigation is what lights up the three characteristics of existence. And so he said that the three characteristics of existence, meaning that anything that takes birth in life uh, will be changing. Anicca, everything that is conditioned passes away. Investigation lights that up. Investigation lights up that because everything's changing, there is dukkha. Anything can happen. Intense vulnerability. All beings who take birth in the universe, we all share this intensity or ache of vulnerability. Investigation lights up anicca, dukkha, anatta, that no matter how closely you look at anything in the universe, that we can't find a separate self there. So that the profundity of investigation is really important. And remembering that this isn't something far away from us. Being able to ask ourselves the question, what's happening right now? All it takes, again, is the mindfulness of remembering. And if you feel like you're getting kind of spacey or complacent, this is the factor of enlightenment that we need. If we're getting too tranquilized, too soft, too gentle, then all it takes is, whoop, what's happening right now? And we come into balance. It's simple, and all it takes is remembering. Energy. Investigation is the first energizing factor of enlightenment. Energy is the second energizing factor of awakening. Again, we've talked a lot about energy as right effort, that very ephemeral thing called right effort. When Upandita from Burma first came here, he talked about the seven factors of enlightenment. And I loved his description of this um, factor of awakening. He called it courageous energy. And to me, when I heard that, oh, this is courage, it's quite moving to just remember that energy is basically courage. And it's the courage that it takes for us to really face what's on our plate, moment by moment. It's the courage it takes to pick up the food of the moment and be willing to eat it, to participate and connect with that experience. It's what allows us to really get the nourishment of that moment. And not to underestimate this, it's called courage. The opposite of courage is fear. <laughs> and so if you look at how, 
how much we're in the moment, then you can guess that this is not an easy factor of enlightenment because it, it, we tend to resist what's on our plate. Well, I didn't order that today. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think there was a mistake. <laughs> Could I send this back and get scrambled eggs? <laughs> I didn't want tofu. There are many metaphors for courageous energy. Sometimes I love to watch a big bird, you know, like a turkey vulture or an eagle, but even a crow will do, even a blue jay. Uh, but to see them take off, you know, from our nice earth, these stones and earth that we walk on as human beings. And most of us, I think, have a connection to birds uh, the, the wings, that sense of flight, that sense of the metaphor of transcendence, that it is possible, that perfection is possible. That's what birds tend to mean for us. And if you see a bird take off, again, like, not so much like a chickadee, but a you know, big bird, it takes a lot of effort to get those wings going. And they just don't go two, two flaps and go, well, I guess it was an effort. I think practice should be effortless. They would fall. You know, flying should be effortless. They say it's effortless. Forget it. You know, the practice is effortful and it's effortless. It's both. When a bird gets up high and they start catching those currents, of air, the warm currents, they go higher and higher and higher. When you see an eagle go up so high that they disappear, it's awesome. Now that's what we're doing in the practice at times. We see the emptiness of experience so deeply that experience disappears. It's so empty. It's so unsolid. It's beautiful, that metaphor. Another metaphor is climbing a mountain. No matter how much you might think that climbing a mountain is effortless, it's effortful. It really takes a lot of energy to climb a mountain. And when you get to the top, it's effortless. It's wonderful. You have this whole other perspective, just like the bird that flies up high. There's transcendence. Climbing the mountain to the top. Yes, transcendence is possible. Yes, effortlessness in practice is possible. But both happen. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to like it when I'm on the top of the mountain, not climbing. <laughs> I tend to like it when I feel like that bird soaring. I don't like to flap my wings. None of us like it when we taste effortlessness. We tend to hate it when we start flapping again. It's like something seems wrong because we remember that perfection and the more we taste the effortlessness, the harder it is to handle it when we have to work at it. You know, it's so distasteful. <laughs> you know? Let somebody else do that. <laughs> it's like letting someone else clean the bathroom. Whatever it is that we don't like. Another way you can think of it is riding a bike. There's the ups and downs of life. It's natural. 
We tend to like going downhill. We don't tend to like pedaling uphill. Even though we know that pedaling uphill is what's helping those flabby muscles. You know, it's what's helping strengthen the muscle. Flapping up in practice or climbing the mountain in practice is actually strengthening us. That's why it's energizing. But it takes courage. In listening to people today, I got a sense of um, the impatience of us all. Uh, It tends to be a practice where if one starts to see that it's a way of life, uh, you know, it's a different ballgame. I remember one time years and years ago when I was practicing over in the annex and I was doing walking meditation and it was one of those junctures where I was just taking a step and I got that sense that it was a way of life rather than just a retreat. (laughs) You know those moments where you really see that the commitment to it is starting to deepen and it terrified me that I was starting to make this kind of commitment, like, (laughs) mindful for the rest of my life, like, I'm really going to watch a step, each step for the rest of my life. It got so heavy, and I got so freaked out. Uh, It was horrible, and I couldn't even practice. (laughs) We do that to ourselves. If you think you have to be mindful for the rest of your life, just pack it in. You know, it's so intensely heavy, it's such a burden, it's too much. But if you get that sense that, yes, I have this commitment, I have this courage, uh, but what's realistic? Birds always come down back to the ground to eat. We always need to take a rest. It's that balance of courage and then rest, courage and then rest, courage and then rest. And this takes a lot of patience. There's a poem by Pablo Neruda called Fear. And this was around the time that he was starting to get diagnosed with cancer. Everyone is after me to exercise, get in shape, play football, rush about, even go swimming and flying. Fair enough. Everyone is after me to take it easy. They all make doctor's appointments for me, eyeing me in that quizzical way. What is it? Everyone is after me to take a trip, to come in, to leave, not to travel, to die, and alternatively, not to die. It doesn't matter. Everyone is spotting oddnesses in my innards, suddenly shocked by radio-awful diagrams. I don't agree with them. Everyone is picking at my poetry with the relentless knives and forks, trying, no doubt, to find a fly. I am afraid. I am afraid of the whole world. I am afraid of cold water. I am afraid of death. I am as all mortals are, unable to be patient. And so in these brief passing days, I shall put them out of my mind. I shall open up and imprison myself with my most treacherous enemy, Pablo Neruda.
I am as all mortals are, unable to be patient. Do you think that's true? One of the ways I like to see this relationship of patience with right effort or energy is to really understand uh, the need for us to wait and to patient and to to rest, to do the best we can, and then to settle back. And one of the metaphors I like is a cocoon. If you think of a butterfly as that sense of uh, freedom, and we have the caterpillar that just kind of sees what's right in front of its face, and it just eats and eats and eats and eats and eats, and it gets kind of uh, ready to go in and into a cocoon. If you've ever seen a monarch butterfly cocoon, they're turquoise, and they have these beautiful gold beads around them. They're just exquisite. If you think of the times in practice where you just don't have the energy, you don't have the courage to to face what's on your plate, then what do you do? Do we hate ourselves for that? Do we think of ourselves as weak, as no good? Do we say, the only way to do this is to push through this, to strive? Is that courage? When a caterpillar goes in a cocoon, it's building up the strength in its wings to fly. And so the way that we learn to rest in the practice is really important because it's really what allows effortlessness to happen or even right effort in efforting to be in balance. And I've talked a lot about the ability to rest or wait and practice, but if you think of it just like, um, if you could sit here at times and feel like it's totally okay to go into a cocoon, you don't have to be forcing yourself to be with each moment all the time when it's not the right time. So I think of courage as knowing how to back off. Courage is knowing when to head for the hills. Because it would actually be stupid to eat what's on your plate if you can't swallow it. So you kind of have to know if you're ready to swallow what's on the plate. And freedom in practice is learning how to back off. Go to sound, go to the breath. If it's really bad, open your eyes. Stand up. If you're out walking, open up. If it's really bad, go for a walk. (laughs) If it's really bad, get under the covers and pull the covers over your head. That's a cocoon to the max. (laughs) Sometimes we need that kind of cocoon, and it's okay. If you do it and you notice what happens, because at some point you're going to want to come out. You can't stay in a cocoon all the time you'll actually want to come out from that place and you'll want to test your wings again. You'll want to eat what's on the plate. The last 
energizing factor of awakening is joy or rapture, also known as joyful interest. So it goes from investigation to courageous energy to joyful interest. When we can sustain energy, when we can sustain eating what's on the plate, when we can sustain being with what is happening in the moment, then it's said that interest in what's happening can occur. And interest can happen in what's happening only if we have enough energy. So interest in pain, interest in the breath, interest in the color red in this rug, interest in these lights, amazing lights, whatever, interest in this amazing microphone. Interest in what happens comes from energy. And energy isn't personal. Remember that energy comes and it goes. Joy, or this energized interest in what's happening, is called the gateway to enlightenment. It's the gateway to freedom. So that ability to sustain the energy and eventually the interest is coming is what, it's the door you go through in practice to really wake up. So it's called the gateway to freedom. And in our culture, joy is kind of out of balance. Joy, I like to describe as its opposite. Joy is the opposite of a timid mind. Joy is the opposite of a dull mind. Joy is the opposite of a righteous mind or a judgmental mind. Emily Dickinson said that to live is so startling it leaves little time for anything else. <laughs> now, can you relate to your moments here like that? Joy is like the soft heart of a young child. And the softness of heart is what makes joy accessible for us. Joy is the intense delight in exploring what's on our plate. It's the intense delight in exploring the truth. I think of joy coming when we really have the intention to understand rather than to judge what's happening. All we have to know is that difference. When we have our plate of life moment by moment, are we ready to judge it or are we ready to understand it? That's the difference between this joyful mind and an unjoyful mind. So one way to think of joy is a highly energized interest in life. It's the opposite of ambition. It's the opposite of any expectation. It's pure exploration. And joy happens when we really don't have an agenda, when we're really not looking for results. It's when we're not trying to get something out of our experience. It's when we're not trying to get something out of our practice. It's not about what we want to be happening in life, but it's about what is happening in life, moment by moment. So again, it's that deep delight in the truth. The practice is learning to trust our own experience. It's learning to trust that what's on our plate in any moment is just enough and that each moment of our life is our teacher. 
I've had a number of operations in my life, you know, these little trips to surgery, and some of them have been disastrous in terms of my idea of how my mind should have been in relating to the experience rather than how I really did relate to the experience. And then recently, I had another opportunity for just kind of a minor surgery on my eye. When my husband Stephen and I were driving to the uh, surgery, I started to notice a lot of fear coming up because I have had some difficult experiences in the past with the anesthesia not working at all. So there'll be this fear of re-experiencing this really difficult pain. And I used to judge myself for not being able to open to it. So we're driving along, and I started having these waves of fear come up. And I said to Steve, oh, here it comes. The fear's coming. And he he said, uh, very purely, he said, why don't you try being mindful of it? And so, okay, novel idea. <laughs> and I started trying to be mindful of it, and it just, it's like I couldn't eat it. It, was, it wasn't just enough. It was too big a wave, wave after wave. So one of the joys of learning metta practice is that you have an alternative in that moment. And I started to do metta instead of mindfulness. You know, may I be happy just as I am. May I be peaceful (laughs) with whatever is happening. And that sense of reminding myself, oh yeah, may I be peaceful with whatever is happening, it's strengthening. It's reassuring. Sometimes we need that strength and reassurance with fear before we can be courageous, before we can eat what's on the plate. There was such a difference in that experience when I saw how I could do the metta first and then the mindfulness. Then it, it just doesn't stop there. You know, it's like a it, it flows. Metta, some mindfulness. Metta, some mindfulness. And when I was lying there on the um, whatever you call it, that operating table, I remembered a line from Pablo Neruda a poem where he said, "I never." have felt let down by a single wave, meaning by the ocean. He'd never felt let down by a single wave. In my experience this time, I was really just with the movement of the breath, and then sometimes metta, the movement of the breath, metta. And I felt that I wasn't let down by a single breath in terms of courage. It was so empowering. And sometimes when I was sort of really getting, um, you know, from the anesthesia in some really different realms, (laughs) I would notice that I would have these pictures of places that I'd been in nature in my life, like a place in Honolulu by the water, or this place where I grew up in Framingham, Massachusetts, by a lake. And it would be just these beautiful scenes. And I felt that was because, you know, Steve was sending me metta, and I had been doing metta. It was like that um, strength from nature was coming through as well. It was a really wonderful experience. The surgeon at the end was really surprised (laughs) I was doing so well. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was a very difficult place for him to operate. You know, and I was just said, you know, it was okay. Just one breath at a time. But I'd never had that experience uh, with surgery before. It was wonderful. Joyful. When I was born, I was pronounced dead. <laughs> it's a kind of funny karma. <laughs> and I've looked at that kind of karma a lot. Uh, there's been a closeness in my life to this fear of death, uh, very accessible, this fear. But the other side of it is that it feels like when you're born dead, you know, the rest is kind of borrowed time, you know. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of gold each moment that you get to live when you've already been, when you've already died. Uh, and I found that relationship to this closeness to death, the fear of it, and then the acceptance of it, and the joy that comes out of that, really significant. You know, I can laugh about it, but I see that the closer people get to to, to understanding that anything can happen, that death is really close to us. It's arrogant to think that we might not die this next second. It's arrogant to think we're going to get out of this hall tonight. It's arrogant to think we're going to be awake tomorrow. It's arrogant because w the truth is we really don't know. It's scary to face that. It's scary to face mortality. But if we awaken to it, it's incredibly energizing. It's incre it makes the next breath incredibly interesting. <laughs> it's, it's lively. It's interesting. It's joyful. Investigation, energy, joy are the energizing factors of enlightenment. Calm, concentration, equanimity are the tranquilizing factors of enlightenment. Calm. This is the first night in a while that when I've been talking we haven't had a major thunderstorm. I don't know if you've noticed, but you probably all can hear me for the first time. I thought of playing... <laughs> as an alternative, but <laughs> I thought maybe you'd enjoy the calm. When you've gone through a storm, whether it's a physical storm in nature or an internal storm in a practice or in life, you might notice that at a certain point there's that calm after the storm. And it's really good to just know what that's like to taste that calm. Sometimes people will tell me that nothing is happening in their practice. You know, how many times have you thought nothing is happening, nothing is happening? I would bet you that it's calm. But if you're an intensity junkie like me, you would find that calm is sort of not so acceptable. Calm can tend to be neutral. It's tranquilizing. If you don't like tranquil, or if you don't like calm, it can be, you can miss it. You can miss that it's ripening in practice. What if it's just calm? 
Can that be just enough? Can that be something you can eat on your plate? Even if you don't feel joyful, maybe this is the only light in, in terms of factors of awakening that's happening. A calm, once you get in a storm, <laughs> is kind of nice. So if you keep experiencing the opposite and then the calm, I think you'll start to like the taste of it over time. I remember when one of the great teachers in this tradition, Mahasi Sairao from Burma, he's dead now. Uh, He was a great, great scholar as well as a great practitioner. And he's the one who made this practice accessible to lay people. It was a monastic practice until he taught it to lay people. And if it wasn't for Mahasi Sairao, none of us would be doing this practice. He came here in 1979. I had been living up in northern Maine, came down uh, from there to staff, and I had never been exposed to any Asian teacher. I really had not, not much understanding of what we were doing or the practice or Buddhism. Uh, and it was a really big course. There were very few cooks. It was very busy. I had given up my room to somebody so that they could be here. Uh, I also would get up about one or two in the morning and cook for the monks and then come and cook for breakfast or lunch. It was a very busy time. Uh, so I used to, I was out in a tent and the alarm would ring and I'd just get up and I'd run over to the house across the street where they'd be staying. I would literally feel the calm before I would get in the house. The quality of the calm that Mahasi Sayadaw had was so deep that we all started calling him Mr. Void. (laughs) (laughs) And for some people, that calm was so tangible and so deep and so frightening that some people thought, well, if that's how I'm going to be, I don't want to practice. You know, it was really really powerful. It was just so empty. He was so empty and so calm. I would run over there and kind of bump into it, and it would be like I was physically bumping into a wall of calm, and it would be like, mm, what's this? Because <laughs> I, you know, I'm more like energized, and I'd hit it, and it would be like, ooh. <laughs> and I'd be over there for a while, and I just started tasting it. And at first I couldn't swallow much of it, but over time I started to love it, love that calm, tranquil feeling. It's still the side of the factor of enlightenment side that I need to develop. I tend to lean toward the energizing sides. Calm is wonderful. Concentration, we've talked a lot about. Another aspect of calm, actually, to mention is that it's said that when the mind is no longer burning with aversion or burning with attachment, that we'll feel this calm. Sometimes it's described as if you were in a hot desert and you went into the oasis of of shade. Uh, The feeling of kind of burning and then going into the shade is another description of this kind of calm. Concentration, we've talked a lot about. I'd just like to mention that um, 
It's really important to remember that there's a very focused and precise kind of attention or concentration, a very microscopic attention that we can develop in concentration. But that's not the only concentration there is. There's an open awareness that's very still and very concentrated. Stillness can be very open and wide or stillness can be very focused and microscopic. Sometimes we need to be developing the precision. Sometimes we need to be developing the openness. If you look at a day of practice, we need both. If we need look at five minutes of practice, we might be needing both. We can't maintain microscopic focused attention all day. And it's actually not so helpful for most of us to be developing just an open awareness all day. What's important is to know what's useful, what's balancing for us. In this practice, we tend to emphasize when you notice you're lost, to come back. When you notice you're lost, to come back to an anchor. For some people, the anchor, it's important that it's focused, And for some people, it's important that it's open. For some people, we'll do a mixture of both in the course of a day. Get to know yourselves. Get to know where it's useful. Get to know where it's uh, it's not useful. Another way to see that is if you went to a movie and you had a big wide screen, sometimes you'll focus in on the movie and you'll focus in on one person. And sometimes you'll take in the whole scene. It's the same in meditation. Sometimes you'll focus in on a breath and sometimes you'll open up and focus on the whole scene. One of the important things to remember only with concentration in this practice is that it's momentary concentration. Life is moving, so we're developing a concentration that can handle being still, but can notice life as it's moving. Equanimity. Equanimity is the last of the tranquilizing factors. It's a very deep acceptance of life as it is. It's a very deep acceptance of how life is changing, that anything can happen, a deep acceptance that any moment can be pleasurable, painful, or neutral. There's an equality of relationship to pleasant experience, neutral experience, and difficult experience. So it's an unconditional acceptance, an unconditional peace. When I went to Wales in England for my retreat after I was on staff here. I didn't have much money at the time and a lot of the staff pitched in to help me to go. And I felt, I didn't know it, but I had a lot of expectation on myself of what should happen at that retreat. I've explained, I think, before that when I went to that retreat, it was June, I was expecting a hot, kind of sunny experience. It was cold, rainy. I was allergic to every room. I was allergic to the rugs. And I spent the first three weeks blowing my nose. 
for my practice, just <laughs> constantly. And one day, the sun came out about three weeks into the retreat, and it was like I had all this expectation, like, oh boy, I can finally do the practice. And I went running outside, and I brought my zafu, and I sat and walked outside in the sun in the morning, and I was just so happy. I mean, I was just ecstatic. And about 11 o'clock, I sat down, and it's, I started to sweat. And it got hotter and hotter. And then I noticed flies started landing, and they started walking in the places that were sweaty. And I just crashed. It was like, you know, it was like, I was so unhappy. I was so miserable. I was so aversive. It was like, I can't, I can't practice. It's impossible. Uh, it was so painful. It was so excruciating. And I finally surrendered. It was like, oh, <laughs> this is the practice. There is no happiness conditioned by experience. It's like I was so caught up in having a happy, pleasurable experience. And I saw on a deep level that I couldn't count on it. It wasn't dependable. That happiness that I got from allowing that experience rather than fighting it, I got a glimpse of what the practice was about. It was like this glimpse of freedom. Then the cook left the retreat and her room was available. Everyone was sitting in the hall. And the only detail about the room that was difficult was that the walls were paper thin and I was right next to the bathroom. So I was sitting in there and I was really grateful. I was so grateful to finally have a place where I wasn't sick. I was sitting in there then somebody would come in, urinate, flush the toilet. I just heard everything. I could even hear people's pants being pulled down. I heard, I heard everything. It was really uh, difficult, uh, to say the least. And then when somebody would defecate in there, you know, it was just like, you know, this is not the practice. <laughs> I didn't get a scholarship for this. <laughs> you know, it was just like so unpleasant. I can't tell you how much I fought that experience. And it was my last week. You know, I was, you know, enlightenment or bust, you know, and, and I just kept hearing urinating, flushing, urinating, flushing, you know, then defecating, you know, and then constipation. I mean, I heard everything. <laughs> I knew everybody's habits. That was the worst part. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> and then I had this moment where somebody flushed the toilet. And I'm not kidding, it was like one of the deepest moments in my life. <laughs> it's like I finally got that that was what was on my plate. And I'll... <laughs> People will hear me say, you know, you can get enlightened listening to a toilet flush. But it's true. You know, it's just like I had one of the deepest experiences in my life. because, And I saw that... Awakening does not depend on the experience. You know, if I went into that retreat and thought that I was going to have, you know, a really deep moment with a toilet flush, I would have just told somebody they were nuts. And yet that's where I let go. And it's often the places that are difficult 
that are really where we let go. You know, it wasn't that moment in the sun where I got free. And that was a very intensely pleasurable moment. So if you're struggling with something in the practice, that's where we're getting liberated. It's so hard for us when we're in it to see it. It's so invisible. But when we're fighting and kicking and screaming, we think that that's the last thing in the world that's going to liberate us. But when we step out and we've surrendered, we're so grateful. I mean, I can't tell you how grateful I am for that whole week listening listening to people in the bathroom. It was like so liberating. Uh, for me, and yet it was so excruciating at the beginning. When the seven factors of enlightenment are in balance, when we have that sense that that toilet flush is just enough, or that sound in the hall that drives us crazy is just enough, or when that knee pain is just enough, or when the fear is just enough, then we see that There's no resistance to what's happening whatsoever. Equanimity is this total absence of resistance to what's happening. It's a total acceptance, it's a total surrender, and it's a total balance with pleasure, pain, or neutrality. And it's so joyous, it's so peaceful when that balance is happening. With with awareness that's in balance, the sense of just enoughness, there's no difference between ordinary or extraordinary. Each moment is just as it is. There's no difference between deep or on the surface. There's no difference between something's happening or nothing's happening. There's no difference between the absolute level or the relative level. There's no difference between life or death. There's no resistance to what's happening whatsoever. Ultimately, we get these extraordinary glimpses of peace. But we also have to work towards it. There's the effortlessness, there's the transcendence, and then there's just the doing the best we can. And the most important thing that I've learned in the practice over and over is that it's okay to be where I am. It's okay to be where I am. That takes a lot of patience, but when I finally do open to where I am, I feel free in that moment. Every moment of life, each moment of the retreat, is the nourishment. Every difficult moment you've had and every liberated moment is the nourishment. And as we start to see that clearly, we slowly begin to accept each moment as our teacher. Each moment of our life becomes the guru. And our understanding starts to deepen as we open to life. Every day is a good day. This is a poem by Dogen that I'd like to end with. 
and it's called On the Treasury of the True Dhamma I. It's quite subtle. Midnight, no waves, no wind, the empty boat is flooded with moonlight. Midnight, no waves, no wind, the empty boat is flooded with moonlight. Just enough. Let's sit for a minute. May we live with patience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.